Let's go ahead and begin. Genesis chapter 1, if you have a Bible. And let's look at, uh, let me give you a bird's eye view of what our goal is for today. Again, if you have your booklet, it's on the, the first page of the booklet, actually labeled page 3. It's the first page after the table of contents. But page 3 of your booklet. We have three sessions today. Our theme is companionship in a creation context. All right, we're looking at Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3. And here's our thought flow. First session, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. This one's going to be largely introductory. It'll be a shorter session. Only seven pages in your notes are dedicated to this session. So this will be our shorter one. Then we'll take a break. We'll then reconvene uh, for the second one, where we'll look at chapter 2. And then the third session is chapter 3. Those are uh, There's 11 pages of notes each for those two sessions. But our first session here today is Genesis chapter 1. And as you can see, the very first portion of uh, page 3, top of page 3, our thought flow is first we're going to look at mankind as a culmination of creation. Right, we're going to set the tone as, as we'll look through just cursory. Genesis chapter, again, there's a lot here, right? We're, we're combing through these three chapters. We can't exposit these three chapters in all their detail. But we're looking at them from the perspective of marriage. How does it teach us about marriage? And so we're going to look first at mankind as the culmination of creation. We're made him as God, both man and woman. And so we'll look at some of the implications of that for marriage. Secondly, our second session, we're going to look at mankind as companions in creation. Mankind as companions in creation. The core of uh, our teaching will be that one flesh relationship. The end of Genesis chapter 2 defines what marriage is, why God made it. And so it's a very important text in the scripture when it comes to marriage. So we'll look at the idea of companionship. Well, then the third session is Genesis chapter 3. And this is, we're going to look at mankind amidst corruption in creation. In other words, we were made, this is the culmination of creation, mankind, particularly man and woman, in this unique marriage relationship that God has designed. That purpose of it, again, chapter 2 is kind of a flashback. Uh, to that sixth day of the creation week, we'll talk about it, but where God really defines the idea of companionship. But then we'll see that idea that, hey, there is a problem, right? There's sin has entered, there's corruption, the creation is not what it, has, what was it, it was intended to be as a result of that marriage also has fallen on hard times. There is difficulty in marriage as a result of that. And so that's kind of our thought flow. And when we get to chapter 3, we won't just end on a downer note, right? That, hey, life is hard, your marriage is hard, everybody go home, right? I mean, we're, we're not going to end there because, praise the Lord, there is, we're going to see that though there's the entrance of sin, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, we're going to see God's pursuit of Adam and Eve, his promise of redemption that he gives to them. And what we're going to see is in God's pursuit of mankind, he gives us the model for how we are to pursue our spouse in a marital relationship, how we are to overcome the sin and corruption that was introduced into creation, introduced to our, into our marriage relationship, and we can overcome that by modeling God and what he does. In other words, the more godly we are, the more we are like God, the better our marriages will be. And so that's kind of our big bird's eye view of the, of the day. All right, so again, as we zoom in, this session, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to read the chapter in just a moment. But let me just show you again on page three, mankind is the culmination of creation. There's five big ideas I want to walk through briefly in this session. First, and we'll take just a couple minutes, but we're going to look at 
the format of the six days of creation. In other words, to understand that mankind, man, woman, made in the image of God, we are the culmination, we're the climax, we're the pinnacle of God's creation. But to understand that, it's helpful for us to just look briefly at the format of creation, the six days of creation, and then we'll see forming of creation, filling of creation, fashioning of mankind, and the function of mankind, meaning we're made in the image of God, we are a function for bringing glory to God, and we do that most explicitly in the marriage context, uh, which is why it's so appropriate for our, our conference today. All right, so those are our big ideas. So if you've got your Bible, let's read Genesis chapter 1. We'll read the chapter in its entirety, then we'll, we'll focus primarily on the end of the chapter. But let's see what God says for us here, okay? So if you've got your Bible, just follow along as I read. Genesis chapter 1 says... In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit of his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 12, and the earth brought forth grass, and the herb yielding seed after his kind, and tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said... Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life. We'll come back to that. That has life, the fowl that may fly above the uh, earth to the, in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moves, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and morning were the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living, uh, the living creature after its kind, cattle and creeping thing, beasts of the earth after its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, here's the climax, the sixth day, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. 
And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for, a, for meat or for food sustenance. Verse 30, And to every beast of the earth, and every fowl in the air, to everything that creeps upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, as we look at this blessed passage, all right, I, I am going to highlight the, the big points of this chapter, primarily focusing upon marriage, right? That's a purpose. That's why we're here. Uh, I taught through the book of Genesis many years ago. In fact, it was the first book study I ever did uh, was in Genesis, and I taught it over in Utah when I came here uh, for the first time. Then I talked through the book of Genesis, the first few chapters, first 11 chapters in particular, the, the footprint of all of human history. And I have longed to get back to teach it ever since. I've learned so much since I went through it the first time. And, uh, but our goal today is to revisit some big ideas, but again, focus primarily on the marriage relationship. Well, to do that, recognize big theme of this session is that mankind is the culmination of creation. To see that, Notice the format, okay? Again, page three of your booklet, let me draw your attention to the format of the six days of creation. You can format it rather neatly. Verse two of the chapter characterizes the creation as without form and void. In other words, it begins in verse one, but with God creating time, space, and matter. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but that earth was without form and void, so what we see, the format of the six days of creation is God doing his creative acts to remedy that situation. So if the earth is without form and void, in other words, it's a mass of matter, then what does God do? Well, first, three days, versus one, or, uh, day one, two, three of creation, is God forming a habitat to dwell in, right? There's no life introduced. Yeah, life in the sense of what we'll, we'll see is, as uh, human and animal life. We'll get to that in a minute. But the first three days is God forming a habitat. He's building a cradle, if you will, for civilization, for mankind. But then the last three days involve God filling the, that creation and doing it uh, in, in, according to the corresponding day. In other words, according to day one, what does God make in day one? Light, But what does he do on day four? Do you see how day one and four correspond? He makes light on day one, but then he makes lights on day four, sun, moon, stars. Then, day two, what does he do? Right, we just read about it, but he makes a firmament in the waters, right? Divides it. So what does he do on day five? He makes water creatures that fill the water, Right? Well, then on day uh, three, God makes the dry land appear. He causes the herb to grow. So what does he make on day six? Land, animals, life, human life. All right? So do you see there's, there's a very clear pattern. God is forming a habitat, and then he's filling it with life. And, he's, and, he's, and he's, you see the, the format of the six days is, is very uh, clearly laid out. Well, 
Notice also, and I put this out, last paragraph of page three, God only names the things that he creates on days one through three. All right, well, primarily three. Four, I guess he does, he does uh, sun, moon, and stars also. But then Adam names all the creatures, right? Created really days five and six, I guess. That would be the correction. But notice the act of naming is an exercise in dominion and evidence of ownership. We see this many times in the scripture. The idea of naming something or renaming something is the evidence of ownership and control. Does that make sense? In other words, you have a dog. Anyone have a dog in here? Did you name your dog? Yeah. Does anyone have children in here? Did you name your children? Okay. No. <laughs> Someone said no. <laughs> uh, do you name, some people name their cars, right, their vehicles. Some people name all sorts of stuff. But the point is, I name my children. Why? Because they're mine. I didn't name your children. You didn't name my children. I didn't name your children. Why? Because your children are yours. My children are mine. Right? Stay out of my business. I'll stay out of yours. Right? But the idea is, I, I am the parent to my child, and I name them. God is the creator of all things, so he's the one naming the big pieces of creation. But then when it comes to that which he's going to give over to mankind, right? It says the fowl of the air, fish of the sea, everything that creeps upon the face of the earth. All of that is under the dominion of man. So God has Adam name those things. Does that make sense? And so it's Adam exercising dominion and lordship over creation. So again, turn the page, page four. We see in this idea, this format, that we see God is leading up to the sixth day of creation. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment and then more so in the next session. But the climax, the most ink given to any particular part of creation is the creation of mankind. Now in chapter one, mankind is, is you know, just given a few verses, right? In the record of day six of creation. But then, we'll get to it next session, but chapter 2, Genesis 2, is a flashback to that sixth day of creation, where we see an entire chapter is given now to that to rehearse and to give more detail to the creation of mankind. So, out of all the things that God created, what's the most important? Mankind, right? That's the idea. We are the climax. We are the culmination of God's creation. Well, as God is forming creation on those first three days in particular, right? He's making a habitat in which to dwell, in which to fill it with life. The primary verb that we see over and over again is the word divide. Did you see that? The first half of the chapter, he divides this, divides that. First bullet point on page four, I just summarized the major things that God divides in chapter one. God divided the light from the darkness, the waters from above, and the waters below. He divided the waters from dry land. Uh, he divided between living and non-living matter, between different kinds of plants, between different kinds of lights, between life and conscious life, between, uh, uh, again, life and conscious life. <laughs> That's a repeat. So mark that down. <laughs> We're going to find all my typos today, okay? Um, but human life as well as male and female. In other words, when God divides, he's adding complexity into his creation, right? In other words, he's, he's making it more complex, more ornate. You can think of it as a pie, right? Big Pie is a whole piece of pie until you cut it in half. And then you cut it again, and you cut it again, and you cut it again. And now, as you're dividing, you're actually adding complexity to there's more pieces now than there was before. And that's the idea of what God is doing in creation. But even when he gets to mankind, humanity 
he divides in half, male and female. And he then, what we will see, however, is this big word, it's one of the primary verbs. If you were just to count up the use of the word divide in chapter 1, it's one of the main verbs in Genesis chapter 1. But it's ironic when you compare that with chapter 2. And I point that on your second bullet point on page 4. Is later we're going to see how this motif is reversed, how God's dividing this, 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 and that. But when we get to the one flesh relationship, he's taking that which was divided and bringing it back together in a special sort of union. Or as John Stott will say, and we'll see it in the next session, he calls it a reunion of sorts, when man and woman is brought together in this unique one flesh relationship. So God, not only, again, is forming creation, but he's filling creation with life. Again, second major heading there on page four, he is filling creation. Now let me introduce you, uh, if this is perhaps a little nerdy, but it is helpful, I, I believe, so I'm gonna introduce you to some Hebrew words. You're gonna see four primary Hebrew words that are used in Genesis chapters one and two to describe God's creative activity. And so let me introduce this to you, and then we'll see as we work our way through these chapters and this material, we'll see why this is significant. But first, the first word that appears in Genesis 1-1, and it reappears in chapter 1, verse 21 and 27, is the Hebrew word bara. This word is God, it's referring to God bringing into existence something that did not before exist. We won't go there for sake of time, but you have it in your notes. Romans 4.17 gives us that definition to that word. God calls into existence something that did not before exist. That is the, the meaning behind the Hebrew word barah. Well, then second, you have the Hebrew word that is uh, transliterated, asha. This refers to making something as in fashioning it with your fingers. For instance, this word is used several times throughout Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I have the references listed there. Uh, but it will also be used elsewhere in the scripture to refer to a potter forming clay. Right? It's the idea of an intricate working with the fingers, if you will, shaping, fashioning. It's similar to the third word, which is yatsar. Yatsar is going to appear twice in the narrative, the creation narrative. And this word is used of God's special forming of Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. In fact, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more next session, but go ahead and read it with me if you've got your Bibles open. Genesis 2, 7 and 8 says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And that idea of God forming, all right, well, in fact, it's used again in verse eight, it says the Lord God planted the garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed, right? That Hebrew word is Yitzar. And that's the word that refers to God forming the beasts that appear before Adam. He, he'll use it uh, forming Adam in verse two and or seven, chapter 2, verse 7 8, as well as uh, verse 19, the same chapter, when he forms the beasts that appear before Adam. But the unique idea behind this word is the planning process. In other words, God planned, invented, mapped out, or devised Adam before he made him. We won't go there for a second time, but the, this Hebrew word will also appear in Psalm 94, uh, Isaiah 46. You can go check those references out on your own. But the idea is it's talking about a plan. That God took special care in planning mankind and then forming them, right, and breathing into their nostrils the breath of life. We'll come back to that idea in just a moment. But the fourth and final word, top of page five, that appears uh, for God's creative process, 
will appear only one time, and it's in chapter 2, verse 22, and this is the word bana, and this is the word that specifically refers to woman, what God did when he made or built woman. Chapter 2, verse 22, it says, and of the rib, we'll talk about this a little bit more next session, but it says, and of the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And this is the word that is referring specifically to the mixing of materials, designing complexity, or sometimes it's even used with the idea of artistry. And I like to say, you know, I, I mean, I grew up with, uh, you know, my mom was kind of a black and white sort of individual, you know what I'm saying? She just said it like it was. And she had four boys, right? So it's me, I have three brothers, no girls in the house. And she took it upon herself to try and train us and raise us to understand women best we could because we weren't growing up with one, right? <laughs> I didn't have a sister. I didn't understand what the monthly period was until I got married. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, I was just like, I, I don't know. So my mom said, here, here it is. Everything you need to know. She printed it off and she put it on our refrigerator, she, you know, magnetized it on our refrigerator. There's this picture of a machine, and this said, here's woman. If a woman was a machine, here it is. And it had buttons and knobs and <laughs> dials and lights everywhere. It was like so complex, and then it said, here's a man, on-off switch. <laughs> All right? And mom said, that's everything you need to know about men and women. So, anyways, there's my mother's wisdom I'm sharing with you. But every time I read Genesis 1 and 2, I think of that. Because that's what the word bana is getting at. That there's a level of complexity, a mixing of materials. He takes a rib from Adam, and with it he builds woman. And so there's, there's a complexity, there's an artistry that God uh, employs when he makes woman. But notice again that this idea of God filling creation, I want you to see those big four words and how, though, and we'll come back to those, how they interrelate through the text in all, in all three chapters, we'll see them. But notice that the climax of what God is doing in creation, remember the first three days God's forming creation. Last three days he's filling it. But particularly, he's filling it on the fifth and sixth day with life. That God is filling it with life. This is really what I want to camp on for just a second. Again, subheading page 5, life. Hebrew word is nefesh. Verse 20 of chapter 1 is the first appearance of the Hebrew word nefesh. It's translated life. And life is unique to mankind and the beast. Because Genesis 1 does not apply this word to plants. Right? We still, in, in modern vernacular, talk about plant life. And while that's true in a sense, right, it does grow, it does reproduce, but it's not life in the biblical sense. It does not have the word nefesh, the idea of conscious life, independent movement, decision-making, things like that. That for sort of life, or nefesh, is given only to mankind and beasts. However, as we'll see, the only things that are reported to have been created, bara, remember that's that, brought into existence that did not before exist, are the original materials that God uses in Genesis 1-1, the life that he infuses into animals, Genesis 1, verse 21, but then specifically human life, Genesis 1, verse 27. And the human life is emphasized in the text. I don't know if you noticed this as we read through it, but verse 27 of chapter 1, we see the word created used three times in one verse. In Hebrew, that's a way to emphasize something. So God is underlining this. He's putting an exclamation point upon this. 
is that the climax of creation is mankind. So verse 27, again, chapter 1 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Three times, one verse, he uses the word bara. God made, brought into existence something that did not before exist in the creation of mankind. But we'll also see that mankind is unique from beasts and that man received this breath or this life directly from God. We read it just a moment ago, but chapter 2, verse 7, God forms man of the dust of the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living soul. If you come, you compare that with chapter 1, God speaks to the water in verse 20, or he speaks to the earth in verse 24, allowing them to bring forth life. The point is, as you read these chapters, you see a special attention that God is giving to the creation of mankind. That he's doing something when it comes to mankind that he didn't do. When he made light, when he made water, right? when he made land, when he made plants, when he made whatever, even animals. God has taken it a step further. There's more attention, more care, more intricacy when he makes man. And then there's even more care and, and you know, it, uh, intricacy when he makes woman. So the idea of man-woman as the climax of creation is obvious. As you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, clearly the text is, is underlining that, underscoring this, the importance of it. But it's also underscored in the fact that mankind is made in the image of God. Again, major heading there, page 5. Notice the fashioning of mankind. Mankind is made in the image of God. Now, we could get lost in this. This deserves several lectures in of itself. The image of God is a matter of great theological importance as well as debate. But I try to summarize it on in the second bullet point, uh, you know, up from the bottom of page, bottom of page five. The word studies of image and likeness, as they appear in Genesis chapter one, reveal that humans are not exact copies of God, but rather serve as God's earthly representatives. We are to rule on earth as God rules in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray that, Matthew chapter six, verse ten. Let thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And this idea is God made mankind in his image, and one of the main functions of that is that we would be able to rule on earth as God rules in heaven. We would be able to resemble him. We would be able to mirror him, model him. Well, in what ways do we resemble God? Last bullet point on page five, spills over to page six. We resemble God. If we just read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we find a number of ways that we resemble God. And this is not an exhaustive list, and we could spend a lot of time chasing down each of these individual things, but we're just going to hit the high spots and move on for sake of time. But notice, we resemble God, and that first, we're personal. We are persons. Verse 28 evidences that, that God speaks to Adam and Eve. He speaks with them. We're persons. We're moral. Chapter 2, verse 9, we're eternal. Chapter 2, verse 7, the breath of life. We'll come back to that in just a minute. We're relational, that he, we are made in God's image, man and woman. We have, are meant to be in relationship. It's not good for man to be alone. We'll see that next session. Chapter 2, verse 18, it says God says it's not good for man to be alone. Mankind is also vulnerable. Because we're relational, we're, we're vulnerable to rejection. We're volitional, meaning we can make decisions. We're creative. If you look at Acts 17, 29, we won't go there for the time, but it describes the image of God in man as something that we have. It's the Greek word techne. It's where we get the English word technique. It refers to skill. We're intelligent beings. Now, there's some of us, you know, we question that a little bit. But, but the reality is we have an intelligence well beyond the beast, right? So 
We're intelligent beings, chapter 2, verse 20. We can enjoy things. And that's a, that's a whole sideline. But Ecclesiastes 3.22 highlights that that's one of the unique things about the, the image of God in mankind is that we have the ability, the unique ability amongst God's creatures to actually have enjoyment in a deeper sense, even a relational or even a spiritual sense. We can enjoy things. Beasts cannot, not in the same way. So there's, and again, that's, that's a very small representative list, not exhaustive, but those are various things that we can observe through the scripture that we typically lump in to what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, as we'll see in our third session, sin hinders these qualities, but does not eradicate them. Because even after the fall, Genesis chapter 9 will still say that man is made in the image of God. And so we still have the image of God, but these qualities are hindered because of sin. But, here's the big theme of the Bible, in redemption, these are restored. Okay? Colossians 3.10, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2 is going to make that point. Let me pause on that for just a second. I already foreshadowed this in the introduction, but here's the thing. Sin has entered into creation. As a result, our marriages are not what they ought be because we're sinners and we're married to sinners. Right? But... Here's the thing. In redemption, what Christ has done for us, the Spirit of God in our lives, if we are cooperating in this task of sanctification, what God is doing to make us more like His Son, Jesus Christ, then we begin to overcome the sin that hinders us. We get closer to shining in the image of God, right? That shines through all the brighter. And as a result we are able now to function better in our marriages the way that God designed us to be, right? In other words, that's the big idea that we're going to see over and over and over again is that the more godly you are, the better spouse you will be, all right? In other words, we can pull out all the self-help books. We can read all the major marriage manuals that are put out by all the secular scientists, et cetera, sociologists. We could go on. They're going to have all these different Band-Aids, things that can help, you know, tips, that's great. They can help. But the Bible says that the more godly you are, the better your marriage will be. And that's really the fundamental idea, that if we're made in the image of God and we are to shine in his image, then that's where we fix our marriage most, is becoming like God. So, again, as we see, the function of mankind Genesis chapter 1 is really helpful in that it informs us as to our identity. Who am I? Well, I'm God's image bearer. I was specifically designed to know God, love God, and serve God by representing him on the earth. Climactic section of scripture, I think it's worth a quick read. If you've got your Bible, go to Revelation 4 real quick. Let me make this point. But Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 tells us why God created us. Right? This is the big question, the big why question. Scientists, as they say, can tell you about matter and mechanics. They can make observations about the creative world, but they cannot explain motive. They can't answer the why question. Why? Why is this here? Why does it work the way it works? To understand that, you've got to go to Sunday school, right? You've got to read your Bible. But Revelation 4.11 tells us, Again, it's in the context, if you're familiar with it, it's a throne room scene. John, the, the apostle, is receiving uh, visions from God. 
concerning the coming of Christ, the second coming that is. But he sees this throne room scene, chapter 4. We see this worship scene where the 24 elders, according to verse 10, fall down before him that sat on the throne before God. They worship him that lived forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne, saying, verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. There's the purpose to our existence. We were made by God in his image for his pleasure, for his glory. And so that is the function of mankind. That's why we are here. That's why we exist. But let me make an observation that I have only recently come to appreciate more uh, than, than I have in the past. In other words, in bottom of page, well, middle of page six there, major heading, mankind in relationship. There's an interesting observation that, because typically when we talk about this in theological circles, we talk about the image of God and mankind, we talk about us as individuals. Right? We talk about, well, I'm made in the image of God, and you're made in the image of God, so we are meant to reflect God, to, to demonstrate his characteristics, to rule the earth as God rules in heaven. All of that is true. But the way that these relationships are paired and the plurals, the them statements, in chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28, it indicates something a little bit deeper. So let me explain this. Let me walk you through this. And this will be our big point that I want to make in this session, which will set us up for the next one. But notice that according to Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28, these verses indicate that God has placed man into a threefold relationship. We have a relationship first between man and God. That's our first and primary, primary relationship. Me as a creature, you as a creature, our first relationship is between us and God. But secondly, we also have a relationship between us and our fellow men, as well as a, cre as a relationship between man and nature or the rest of creation. Do you see that? Let's reread it. Genesis 1, verse 26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, fowl of the air, the cattle over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, fowl of the air, every living creature that moves upon the face of the earth. So notice... We're made in God's image, verse 26, so we have a relationship with God. We're imaged after God. Second, we're made male and female, and we are to work together to carry out the commission God has given to us. So we have a relationship first between us and God. Second, us and our fellow humans, particularly man and wife. But then we also have a relationship with the rest of creation because we are to have dominion over that creation, over the fish, the sea, fowl, the air, etc. That's verse 28. So again, let me just walk you through it in the notes. The references to God's creation of man, to God's blessing of man, to the mandate that God gives to man indicate that our primary relationship is with God. Right? That's our first and foremost relationship. If that relationship is not right, none of the others will be. All right? That's why, again, I go back to that basic concept, that basic idea. The more godly you are, the better spouse you will be. If you work on your marriage without working on your relationship with God, it's a band-aid. It's a temporary fix. It's not really going to fix the problem. 
So man's relationship with God is primary. Secondly, however, man's relationship to his fellow men is indicated in the words, male and female created he them. Man's relationship to na nature is limited to the fact that God's given us dominion over the earth. We ought to observe that no other creature lives in precisely this same threefold relationship as mankind. Not even the angels have this same sort of threefold relationship. Mankind is unique in all of God's creation, including angels. We stand in this unique relationship to God, to one another, to the earth. So, going on, bottom of page six, to be a human being is to be directed toward God. Man is a creature who, who owes his existence to God, is completely dependent upon God, and is primarily responsible to God. This is his or her first and most important relationship. All of man's other relationships can be seen as dominated and regulated by this one. To be a human being in the truest sense, therefore, means to love God above all, to trust him, obey him, to pray to him, and to thank him. This is uh, a sidelight. I won't take you on it for any length of time, but it's a fun rabbit trail. Several times in the scripture, Old New Testament, it describes wicked men as beastly or brutish, is the old King James translation. Brutish, right? You ever had, uh, again, I was raised with a mom, had four boys. So every once in a while, she would call us brutes. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's the idea. A brute is it's actually the concept that you are not behaving as human. You're acting like an animal. Meaning, you're basically acting on survival instinct. But you're not acting as human beings should act. Meaning, we are to live in God's image, to love him, to be loved by him, to love others, to evidence compassion, all of the characteristics of God. That's what it means to be human. Animals don't do that. Human beings do. So if we're not actually functioning that way, we're not functioning the way God designed us to be. So I like, again, the way it's phrased here, second, second, you know, well, first bullet point, but it's kind of the second paragraph. To be a human being, in the truest sense, means to love God above all, to trust him, obey him, pray to him, thank him. But also, to be a human being is to be directed towards one's fellow men. Again, going back to Genesis 1, we see this, the close juxtaposition in verse 27. The image of God created he him, male and female created he them. More than sexual different, differentiation, differentiation, that was hard to say. More than sexual differentiation is involved here. Since this is found also in animals. But the Bible does not say that animals have been created in the image of God. What is being said in this verse is that the human person is not an isolated being who is complete in himself or herself, but that he or she is a being who needs the fellowship of others, who is not complete apart from others. The point is made even more vividly in chapter 2. We'll talk about this next session. This is setting us up for it. But this point is made even more vividly in chapter 2, which describes the creation of Eve. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So he'll make him a helper suitable for him, or a helpmeet. Again, we'll camp on this idea much more in the next session. But that word, helpmeet, or meet for him, suitable for him, is the Hebrew word neged. This means corresponding to, answering to. Literally, therefore, the expression means a help answering to him. The words imply that woman complements man, supplements him, com completes him, is strong where he may be weak, supplies his deficiencies, and, fill and fills his needs. 
Man, therefore, is incomplete without the woman. Next page, page eight. This is also true vice versa. It holds true for the woman as well as for the man. Woman, too, is incomplete without the man. Man supplements woman, complements her, fills her needs, is strong where she is weak. We'll talk about that phrase a little bit more in the next session, but that's what the word means. That's suitable to or a help meet for. So again, observation, man cannot be truly human apart from others. This is true even in a psychological or social sense. A scholar by the name of Hokema makes this, he, he gives this illustration. They put it in, uh, it's indented there, page 8. Near the end of the 18th century, in the region near the French town of Aveyron, a small boy was apparently abandoned by his parents and left to fend for himself in the forest of Lupine. Years after the boy was found, he resembled an animal more than a human being. He ate nuts, acorns, wild fruit. His speech consisted of grunts. He never did learn to, to talk coherently. It would appear that apart from contact and fellowship with other human beings, a person cannot develop into a normal, into normal manhood or womanhood. It's interesting that this is true on the, so, on the social or psychological levels, but as we'll see, this is also true in a spiritual sense, that ultimately we are human, most human, we reflect God most closely when we are in companionship. So again, continuing page eight, in fact, or the fact that we can only be complete human beings through encounters with, with fellow human beings is true in other ways as well. It is only through contacts with others that we come to know who we are, what our strengths and weaknesses are. If you grow up under a rock or in a cage, you don't learn those things, right? It's only in fellowship with others that we grow and we mature. It is only in partnership with others that we can fully develop our potentialities. This holds for all the human relationships in which we find ourselves. Family, school, church, vocation, profession, recreational organizations, and the like. We're born into families, we live in a society. Most of us end up establishing our own family units through the companionship between man and wife. Woman complements man, and that man complements woman. In this way, human beings reflect God, who exists not as a solitary being, but as a being in triune fellowship. There's your big theological connection. If we're made in the image of God, we are by nature relational. Why? Because God's nature is to be relational. Father, Son, and Spirit. God exists in relational harmony in the triune Godhead. That's an important point. That's why we are relational beings. That's why outside of a meaningful relationship, we will never reach our full potential. We never will. So here's the point. Page 9. Let me make some big observations. We'll wrap up this session, take a break, and this will set us up for the next one. Here's the big point. We are designed to function in a specific way. Our meaning, purpose, joy, and fulfillment only comes when we function properly the way God designed us to function. This includes all of the various relationships for which God created us. So here's the point. You are not glorifying God, fulfilling your function, finding meaning and purpose, unless you're living in harmony in the one flesh relationship for which you were designed. Now, obviously, as we'll see, well, let me finish reading, and then we'll, then we'll re I'll, I'll cap, you know, kind of recap. You cannot fully glorify God on your own. You glorify God in community, in relation with other human beings. This is a New Testament command, right? This is where the church comes in, is that 
we're not we're primarily here talking about marriage, marriage and married couples. Right? That's the context of this conference. So you in your marriage do not fully, cannot fully glorify God, function for the you know in the image of God for in which you were created, unless you're living in harmony in your one flesh relationship, which is the core of what we're talking about here today. But even if you're single, this still holds true that you can't fully glorify God unless you're in community. Maybe you're not in the marriage, but you are called to be part of a local church, a Christian community. And not just Christian community, but your community at large, society at large. But if you're married, then this relationship takes precedent above all other human relationships. Again, we're going to make a big deal of this in the next session, chapter 2. It says this is why God designed it. Man is to leave father and mother, cleave to his wife. The two become one flesh. This is the prioritized relationship. If you're married, that is the most important relationship this side of heaven, right? Other than your walk with God. So this is, of course, what we're here to talk about. We're here to learn to have better marriages for the glory of God. And so what we're going to see in the next session is how God, you know, this session we're seeing that God made us this way. That ultimately, we do not fully express the image of God unless we are in relationship. Because God himself is that way in the triune being. But applying that specifically to marriage, because that's the context of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But applying that to marriage, then we need to understand, like I said, and I keep saying, and we'll keep saying, that godliness is the most fundamental point when it comes to our relationship, not just with God, but with our spouse. And so what we're going to see then is God developed this. This will be the next session, so we'll, we'll, we'll take a break in just a second. But this next session, we're going to see what God does to really highlight this. He backs up. In other words, chapter 1, six days of creation all in one glance. Chapter 2, he's going to step back, and he's going to focus in on one particular day of creation, the sixth day. That's the creation of man and woman, creation of mankind. He's going to get more detailed about it because there's more he wants, to, wants us to know, he, more he wants to teach us. And then he's going to climax that chapter by describing the unique one flesh relationship that we need to have, where it comes from, what it's intended to do, etc. All right? Any thoughts, questions, comments on chapter one before we take our break? I know we will have a Q&A later, so just make lots of notes, highlight this, keep your booklet, take it into the breakout session as well as the Q&A session later. But if there's no questions, let's close in prayer. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll set us up for the next session. Father, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, the opportunity we have in just these moments that we shared together to introduce some of these major concepts that we will be exploring throughout the rest of the day, that, Lord, as we will be looking at mankind made in your image, that image fully expressed in relationship, particularly in this context and in our, in our marriage conference, we're talking about our relationship with our spouse, that, Lord, in the marriage relationship, this is where we reflect you and your character and your characteristics most completely, most fully, that we enjoy the blessings that you have designed Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand and grasp these concepts as we introduce them, as we explore them in the next couple of sessions, as we sit down and talk one with another to, to attempt to digest these things, to understand them, to apply them to our lives, to our marriages. We pray that you would help us, strengthen us, so that we can live for your glory and enjoy 
Uh, Lord, your blessing upon our marriages. So Father, we commit to you the rest of the day. Bless now as we uh, get some refreshments and just enjoy one another's company and then prep us for the next session we ask all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.